The following podcast contains strong language and spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. There is also a further content warning for this episode. There will be discussion of assisted suicide as an act of protest, and I will include in the notes a timestamp for where you can skip, uh, jump ahead to skip this segment, and I will do an additional content warning before that discussion starts. Okay. Kia ora e ma. No my mai ki fem fucking tastic. A one woman book club covering all things fem in fantasy and sci fi literature. I'm your host, Tori, and this week we are talking about Lioness Rampant, the fourth and final installment in the Song of the Lioness Quartet. If you are joining me for the first time, stop, go back and listen to episodes one, two, and four, or none of this is going to make any sense. Unless, of course, you've already read these books. Okay, so, have you done that? Yes? Okay. Let's get on with the show. Oh, first of all, I do just want to say, this is my second time recording this episode, because I recorded it yesterday, I got halfway through editing, I got up to go and grab some dinner, and when I came back, my computer had done an update and restarted, so I lost everything. Rookie mistake, not saving my progress. I know, I know, I don't need anyone berating me any more than I already have myself, so if this episode is a little extra ranty, or if I seem a little lackluster, uh, it's because this is my second run, so I'm just a little bit uh, deflated over the whole situation. Anyway... We left off the last episode with Alana receiving a side mission from a random woman that she attempted to rescue on behalf of her tribe's headman, and we open with her on her way to carry out that mission. So she's with Coram as per, and they've arrived in a city in Marin, a neighbouring country. They're looking for a scholar to do some translation work for them. They check into some accommodation, and a mystery ginger babe who in my head looks like Pablo Schreiber as Mad Sweeney in American Gods, mm-hmm. invites Alana to join him for a drink, which like low-key freaks her out because she has no idea how flirting works. And like, have you met me? Uh-huh. Very relatable. So they have mad chemistry, uh, but before she can find out who he actually is, Coram turns up, pissed off his tit, and she takes him off to bed. So during that process of, like, getting him out and getting him back to his room, uh, she finds out that this super, she, this guy that she's been talking to uh, is this super famous dude called the Dragon of Shang. And they're, like, these really intense martial artists who learn their stuff when they're, like, they start learning when they're children, and hardly anyone ever gets to claim the rank of dragon. So he is, like, the best of the best at what he does. Uh, she's she's all like wound up and anxious and nervous about this guy. <laughs> um, she can't sleep, so she goes out for a ride and she gets caught up in her thoughts, much like how the last book started. She's just reflecting, um, and she's starting to realize something that I think we all learn as adults, and that is that real life has boring bits. In fact, a lot of the time it's I mean, it's mostly boring in between bits. You know, there isn't always something happening. Sometimes you're like, 
in between stuff. Sometimes you're laying groundwork for something specific. Sometimes you're just existing and waiting for the next thing to happen to you. And this is the stuff that I know all about right now because I'm currently going through an extended lull in my own life and kind of putting almost everything into this podcast because I can't seem to get a real job. Anyway, Alana is like literally living her hashtag life goals. And even that she's discovering has quiet bits. It's not all exciting adventure and fun and games. Uh, Meanwhile, the goddess has shown up for another one of her completely pointless chats. And Alana confides that she feels a bit lost life-wise. And the goddess provides absolutely nothing of substance as gods are wont to do and then she just dissolves back into the mist so (laughs) alana returns uh turns back to go back to her accommodation and she falls asleep in the saddle falling into the mud um and who should witness this very embarrassing moment but the hot new guy because of course It's just one of those things that holds true for both fiction and real life. You will do dumb, embarrassing shit in front of hot people. But in real life, it's not cute or endearing unless you look like Jennifer Lawrence. Because I can tell you right now that when I nearly fall over in a Macca's at 1am trying to pick up something that I dropped on the floor, I don't look cute. I just look like a dumb, drunk bitch who needs to go home. Right? Like most people in a Macca's at 1am. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, Mad Sweeney gets her back to her room, and Coram gets all huffy about it, and so they have like a bit of a lads chat, and get to know one another, and the only reason I'm bothering to mention this part is for this one line, okay? So Liam says, his name's Liam, uh, she says, she's too good a warrior to have a bad reputation as a woman, at least no one will call her bad when she might hear And then every woman in the entire world laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And I think this might be Tamara Pierce's finest comedic moment. Because (laughs) if there is one thing that every woman knows, and there are innumerable examples of this littered across the internet and across history, it doesn't matter how good at your job you are. It doesn't matter how qualified you are in a particular field. There will always be people who will call you a slut right to your face. Because apparently, that's the worst thing a woman can be. Apart from fat. Being a slut and being fat, apparently, they're just the worst things that a woman can be. People people will never hesitate to discredit and devalue your work and devalue you as a person. Because they've assigned some erroneous moral value to your sexuality and your sexual relationships and it doesn't even matter what the, <laughs> what the nature of your personal relationships is people are going to draw their own conclusions and you could be the best in the world at what you do there will always be someone like <laughs> let's be honest it's a man it's usually going to be some cishet dude waiting in the wings to give you some feedback on why you're wrong, or how he would have done X, Y, Z, or just straight up refer you back to your own fucking work. (laughs) It just drives me nuts. But I do need to stop this rant, because there's going to be more. Let's carry on. (laughs) So we we meet this translator, and uh, they're in his office. Alana lights his candles for him magically, because it's quicker. And Coram points out that a year ago, 
she would have done it the long way. She would have done it manually with flint and steel or whatever. And she goes, a year ago, I was different. So more invaluable lessons from Alana. I'm pretty sure I'm a different person than I was a year ago. You know, keep growing, keep learning. I would hate to think that I'd stopped being able to change and grow as a person, you know? So onto the translation. Um, it's, it's like a map that Alana's brought from this lady. It's got some writing on it that she needs translated. And the translator has absolutely no difficulty with it at all and tells her that it's essentially a treasure map pointing to the fabled Dominion Jewel, a relic of great and almost limitless power, depending on the person wielding it. So Alana and Korum are surprised to be informed by this scholar that the jewel is very real. Of course, Alana decides to find it. Not only would it prove to everyone back at court that she absolutely deserves her knighthood, but it would be an amazing adventure. You know, she doesn't know anyone who's travelled that far. On the way back to town, Alana and Korum are ambushed. They hold their own for a while, but sustain injuries. And then Paul, Sh- Paul Schreiber? Pablo Schreiber turns up to help. Um, and Alana pushes herself too far and faints again, because that's kind of her go-to. And while she's passed out, she has uh, an ominous dream vision of her brother Tom trying to close an open tomb. So totally not foreshadowing at all. I think we all kind of know what's coming at this point. (laughs) When she awakes, the Shang Dragon is there playing nurse, and they get their flirt on hard. Coram comes in and interrupting this very friendly moment, and (laughs) I'll talk about the impending journey. Um, There's a civil war going on in a country that Alana will need to pass through. There are It involves warring ruling families, indigenous tribes rebelling against their settler colonial invaders, and the daughter of the current ruler who can't inherit the throne. So Dragon Man says he'll travel with them as far as the border. Alana gets to work, recovering from her injuries, and when she judges herself ready to get back on the road, Ginger Man challenges her to a friendly bout so he can gauge her skill with a sword. It's totally not a euphemism at all. <laughs> she wins, and he admits that he hasn't lost to a swordsman in years. So, surprise, surprise, we already know Alana's fucking badass with a sword in hand. So they set out the next day, and Alana begins learning some basic Shang hand-to-hand combat moves from Liam. Now, it becomes clear pretty quickly that there are some irreconcilable differences between Alana and her ginger hunk, despite their chemistry. Um, The worst of it boils down to him being straight up afraid of her magic, which she's already had a, she's, she's always had a complicated relationship with her magic anyway, and this does not help. They, they start boning anyways, and even though I don't like Liam at all, fair enough. The vagina wants what it wants, you know? So they get to the border, and they come across a refugee camp. Apparently, South Marin has room to feed them and land for new farmers. And, like, can you imagine living in a world where a massive influx of refugees, who are just trying to not die in a civil war, doesn't trigger mass xenophobia? Because, oh my god, would you believe it? There actually is enough to go around. Shocking. That's how we know we're in... We're reading fantasy. <laughs> we are reading pure fiction because that's not what happens in the real world, unfortunately. <sighs> if only. Anyway, 
Alana tells her leprechaun what they're really looking for, not just any old treasure, but the Dominion Jewel, and he agrees to carry on travelling with her. So they set out, Alana continues learning Shang fighting, and they start seeing the effects of the Civil War. It is becoming even more clear, it just, I mean it's never really good, but it's just becoming ever, ever, ever clearer that Alana's new romance is going to be short-lived. You know, they're definitely together for a good time and not a long time. Uh, She already knows that it's not sustainable, you know, as long as he fears her magic, that's just not going to work. So while they're on the road, they cross paths with a group of women and children, and it turns out that one of the women is the aforementioned heir, Thayet, who can't inherit the throne. Throne? Mm, I don't know if it's a throne, but she can't. I guess. Yeah, their, their system's a little bit different, but um, she can't take over from her father. And the other woman is her bodyguard, Buri. Also, I only just recently learned that it's pronounced Thayet. Like, for almost... 20 years I've been reading it as Thayet, and I only just like recently, like in the last couple of months, um, was watching an AMA with Tamara Pierce and she pronounced it Thayet, and I was like, ah, that's gonna, that's gonna mess me up. Um, So so there's a chance that I will mispronounce it because I have been reading it wrong for a very long time. But it's Thayet, <laughs> okay. So, so these two groups they uh, they join up, at least until the A team can get these newbies to a convent where they can request asylum. So, Alana and Buri uh, they're talking about the situation with Thayet and why she's on the run. And here is the content warning, okay. So, this is where we're about to discuss assisted suicide as an act of protest, and I will include in the notes a timestamp where you can jump ahead to skip this segment, okay? Okay. So Buri explains about the laws that Thayet's father was passing against the indigenous Khmeri tribes and how Thayet's mother, Callison, chose to publicly die by suicide as a form of protest against the mistreatment of her people. So Buri's mother and brother kept the guards at bay while Callison sang her death chant, from her balcony so that the people gathered there could hear what she had to say and then she threw herself from the balcony and died. Uh, Alana declares this a waste, saying that death achieves nothing and she'd rather make changes while she's alive. Liam and Buri both kind of just look at her like, oh, she doesn't get it. And Alana sees that, like she knows that that's what they're thinking. Suicide as protest is a pretty well-established concept in the real world. Um, self-immolation is quite a well-known practice. It's usually done for political or religious reasons. So Alana's take here, I think, is, for me, I think it's the biggest indication of both her white and wealth privileges. You know, she's, she's a part of the white aristocracy and will therefore never be in a position where her people are going to be marginalised and targeted in the way that Callison's people are. You know, she was born with her social privilege. She didn't marry in like Callison did. So she's never likely to, to be in a position where she has absolutely nothing to leverage off and no clear options left to her to the point where ending her life to make a political statement would actually look like a viable option. You know, and I think it, it also speaks to Alana still being very young and ignorant of other worldviews. 
despite being more well-traveled than most of her peers at this point, um, and and maybe not being quite as well-educated as she thinks she is, you know, like her her view of death, and that is that dead is dead, uh, is, is very typical, I think, of real-world Western notions, particularly in like for atheists, of the finality and the futility of death, whereas there are, of course, cultures where death doesn't really have the same feeling of pointlessness. Um, I think some of us have, I think, much healthier attitudes towards death, partly in that um, we kind of understand that grieving is necessary and not inherently bad or something to be shied away from, and that just because someone isn't physically with us doesn't mean that they can't still have a lasting effect on the world or that we stop carrying them with us, you know? Okay, so here is the end of talking about suicide and death, and we resume here. So our band of not-so-merry travellers <laughs> come across some bandits, um, and they decide to raid them for supplies now that their group is significantly expanded. They they need stuff. So th- this group of bandits is too big to take on, and so Alana says that she'll use her magic to help, and Liam is a fucking little bitch about it. Like, he's actually super petty and unreasonably nasty about it, you know? So at this point, I am well and truly done with this man. I think we can just throw him away. So with no small amount of drama, they reach the convent where they learn that Thayat's father is dead and his successor has put a bounty out on her head. Uh, the convent can't offer her asylum because of this. So Alana asks Thayat and Buri to come along with her to the roof and they agree. They disguise their party as best they can in the zero time that they have <laughs> and get the fuck out of Dodge, making all haste for the border. Um, Earlier in this episode, and I think... We might have, in the last episode a little bit as well, talked about Alana's realisation that life isn't always adventure and there are boring bits and in light of her current situation, like meeting Thayat and travelling through war-torn countryside, avoiding and fleeing foreign armies, she's starting to realise that her lifelong dream of adventure-seeking might be a little childish and unrealistic. Surprise! There's real shit going on, and this kind of speaks to her privilege again. Like, yes, she's worked really fucking hard to get where she is, but she's also led a very sheltered life, and there are bigger fish that she could be frying than seeking out lost treasure. So what does she do now? What What is she supposed to do with her life? Well, for now, she's got this quest to finish, and she's reached the Saren border, she's approaching the roof of the world and the object of said quest. So while Alana gets to know Thayat better, she starts plotting some matchmaking between Thayat and Jonathan. When she gets back, she's determined that Thayat and Buri come back to Tortal with her. She's also starting to feel really anxious to get back home, and she can't put her finger on why exactly, But she wants this over with so she can start heading back. Uh, This next bit, I don't want to talk about this again. It was already awkward and dumb doing it yesterday. But okay, this is kind of an awkward bit to talk about. But I will try to get through it again. Um, So they arrive at this inn at the bottom of the pass that they've been aiming for. They, They settle in because a storm rolls in and it's likely to last a while. So... 
Alana actually unpacks her bags. She's like, we're going to be here for a while, so may as well unpack and do some admin. And she pulls out this dress that she's been carrying, and she's like, oh, I haven't worn a dress in a while. It might be nice to put that on. So she's met with generous approval from everyone except Liam, who immediately picks a fight over it. Apparently, he doesn't know how to communicate with her in any way other than being a fucking cunt, right? So, like, there's there's actually nothing for me to, like, pick apart or speculate on about this little segment, because the different sides are all pretty clearly covered in the book. Um, but it's a part that always, like, <coughs> strikes a little bit of a chord with me. Um, so, like... As a kid, and like I guess even well into my teens, like I was, I was never really what would have at the time been called a tomboy. Um, but I also wasn't really a super girly girl either, and like I flat out rejected things that felt hyper feminine to me for quite a while. You know, I was definitely of the, oh, I hate pink and I'm not gonna wear makeup and I'm not like other girls, like bullshit kind of mindset. Uh, and I think a lot of that came down to, like, A, internalized misogyny, of course, and B, I thought those things just weren't for me, you know? Like, I thought, so dumb. Um, I felt like those things were for pretty girls, like, liking dresses and makeup and pretty things and liking boys or ad admitting that you liked a boy. Like, those things were the domain of pretty girls, and so they always kind of felt off-limits to me. You know, I couldn't put myself in, like, in a neat little box that felt comfortable to me. And that's one of the reasons that Alana had such an effect on me and continues to be important to me to this day. You know, she's a constant reminder that Hello, surprise, surprise, people are multifaceted and you don't need to fit into any mold or anyone's expectations of you. Um, and like even this very specific example of her showing up in a dress and that challenging someone's perception of her is a thing that I've experienced, you know? <laughs> I One example, I got fancied up for this function, I blow waved my hair, I had this like full-length dress on and full makeup with fake eyelashes and I swapped my glasses out for contacts and several people who I saw and spoke to on a regular basis walked straight past me because they didn't even recognize me. You know, <laughs> it's kind of weird. And other times when... When I've put in like a little bit of extra effort and got dressed up and done my hair and, and had people suddenly start treating me differently from how they normally would. And it feels very weird and like a little bit confronting, you know, like that that whole like pretty privilege kind of thing. Like, and I've, like I've seen in real time the kind of mental gymnastics that people do when they have to reassess what they thought they knew about me. You know, like if someone sees me genuinely lose my temper for the first time or they see me get really passionate about something that they weren't expecting, and that can kind of uh, can kind of hurt a little bit, you know, that realisation that someone doesn't know you as well as maybe you'd hoped, doesn't really fully see and understand you. And that can be pretty upsetting, because there's a chance that that person may no longer be able to accept you, now that they know you a little better. Um, I know some people can find it scary to be fully understood, um, but for me, that's it's a comfort. You know, I don't like feeling as though I need to hide parts of myself. So, so this is one of the reasons that Alana is so important to me. You know, she she showed me and continues to show me that 
it will always be okay to explore your identity and express it in myriad different ways. Um, and I think that's why she's important to a lot of people, you know? Alana learns that the storm that's rolled in is magical. It has been sent by the being that guards the Dominion Jewel, and it's only going to keep sending more storms to discourage her. So she starts making loose plans to set out anyway. Liam finds out, tries to forbid her from attempting it, and they fight again, and that's more or less the end of their relationship. So Alana has a dream vision, and when she wakes up from it, she decides, fuck it, let's get this over with, I'm done. So she gears up, and she sets out into the raging blizzard, eventually reaching the cave where the being Old Sheetrel awaits her. So Sheetrel assumes the form of a giant rock ape, and they duel. Uh, Alana has this moment of clarity when she realises that, despite what the duel would be able to do for Tortal, she is effectively trying to steal a relic from its rightful owner, and she goes, you know what, fucking keep it, it's yours anyway, who the fuck am I to take it from you? And can you imagine if that happened more often in the real world? Museums wouldn't exist. Return all your shit to the people they belong to. So this amuses Sheetrel, who admits that they have no real use for a jewel anyway. It's going to find its way back. It always does. So Alana might as well have it for now. She passes out from exhaustion, classic, and wakes up back at the inn. The storm has passed while she was out, and she was found and returned back to the inn. Uh, immediately upon waking, she and Liam fight. <sighs> then she talks to Thayat and offers her the jewel to try and fix her homeland. Um, Thayat rejects it because it's forbidden in her country for women to hold the throne, and children hear tales of other lands less wise than ours who came to grief because they let a woman rule. And then she refers to female chiefs among her mother's people, but, quote, everyone knows the Khmer are savages, unquote. Uh, I think we can safely assume that this is not representative of the author's feelings, re women leaders or indigenous people. Uh, it's Thayat's way of letting go of her home. You know, she knows that she would never be accepted as a leader in her own country because of the patriarchal white supremacist power structure there. So this is kind of her out, and maybe she can do something worthwhile elsewhere. Uh, Alana announces that she wants to set out for home ASAP. She's still anxious to get back, and she and Liam break up officially. He still comes back and travels with them anyway. So on the way home, Alana runs into her BFF, Raoul, who it transpires has been out looking for her. So their joyful reunion is short-lived as Raoul fills her in on the news that she's missed, and that is that the king and queen have both died. Uh, John is acting king until his coronation, and her idiot brother brought Roger back from the dead, which I think we all saw coming. Mm. Uh, we also find out that Claw, uh, the chap who's been trying to kill George, and I've mostly been ignoring because at this point it's got very little to do with Alana, um, he is actually Roland of Melvin, that dude who was bullying her back in her days as a page. Um, the story kind of deviates away from Alana and focuses on everything going on in Tortal, and I'm going to completely skip over it, because um, I can. So <laughs> when she arrives back in Tortal, George rushes to meet her and escort her back to the capital. 
where she has emotional reunions with everyone and insists that her new friends all stay with her at her new dad, Miles' house, which is lovely. Uh, her shithead brother Tom comes to visit her in the night, uh, and she sees the toll that resurrecting Roger has taken on him. He is not doing well. In fact, he is dying. So he leaves, and Alana goes to see if Miles is still awake, finds that Jonathan's there, and this is their first contact since their very ugly parting uh, at the end of the last book. So they do very formal formalities, and, and then they're normal humans, and they hug, and they cry, and they're friends again. Uh, at this point, Thayat comes in, and there's like immediate sparks with, with Jonathan, and so Alana pats herself on the back for a plot well-conceived. Um, uh, Alana goes to the palace and faces Roger for the first time uh, since, since he's back from the dead. Um, and this is the first time they can actually be honest with each other. I mean, you know, she fucking killed him in a trial by combat. You can't really be bashful about something like that. So they uh, they mask off. They just plain old hate each other, which is nice and refreshing. Uh, she catches up with more of her friends, uh, and there's some friendly fencing bouts to see if she's still as good as she was and kind of get a feel for this person who they still feel like they don't really know all that well. Like, even though she was always herself, personality-wise, they grew up thinking that she was a boy. And then she was outed, and then she immediately left. And in the meantime, they've they've been hearing stories about her off becoming a legend, you know, so they don't even really know if she still is their friend. Um, and I have like a little side note here about some questionable phrasing. So they've, they've had, she's had these like friendly bouts and she's walking off with her friend and she says, were the last two even Tortolan? And her mate goes, no, one was Garland and the black was Carthaki. Now, this is one of those things where like immediately I was like, pretty sure that's racist um but i will check and make sure um it took a bit of googling to get results that actually answered the question i wanted which is what's the deal with using black lowercase b as a noun rather than an adjective a uh, brief explanation of nouns versus adjectives because i have made the mistake before of assuming that everyone knows the difference so a noun is basically a person, place, object, or thing, and an adjective describes a noun. So when the guy says, the black was Carthaki, that's using black as a noun. If he had said, the black man was Carthaki, that would be using black as an adjective, because man is a noun, black would be describing that noun. Now, yeah, my gut instinct is that using black as a noun is bad, um, but the only result I really got back was from a 2007 article from Pointer, which is not a publication I'm familiar with, but uh, they had this quote from their Dean of Faculty, Keith Woods. Quote, Using colour as a noun reduces the person to a species, and an imprecise one at that. But the larger issue for me is that it's an act of dehumanising the person, summing up their essence by rendering them an inanimate colour. End quote. Uh, and that's a good enough explanation for me. So don't use it as a noun. Um, confirmed, it's bad. Don't do it. Uh, awkwardly, though, this isn't the only time I've seen Tamara Pierce use black as a noun. So in Emperor Mage, in the Immortals Quartet, 
uh, a character is described as being a light-skinned black. And the two usages come in different contexts, right? So the first one we saw here was in character dialogue. The Emperor Mage example is an in-text description. So we can't just put it down to separating the character from the author. Um, from what I've seen and heard, I don't think Tamara Pierce is racist. I think this is one of those examples of a thing that has always been wrong and bad. It's just now we know better. Uh, these books came out in like the 80s and 90s. And I think the conversations around like racial nomenclature probably weren't as robust as they are now. So probably not many editors who were people of colour at the time. Uh, and so they probably like, wouldn't have picked up on that being a racist wording choice, right? So, yeah, I don't... I, it's not good, regardless. It's not good. Um, my co Also, my copies of these books are slightly older editions, so I don't know if that's been changed in newer runs. But I would appreciate hearing from anyone who has newer editions who can maybe shed some light uh, on whether they've updated to use non-racist language uh, in these examples. Um, yeah, hit me up if you if you know. Uh, Alana learns that politically all is not well at home, and uh, so Jonathan arranges for her Thyat and the Dominion Jewel to be formally introduced to court. Uh, Alana gets to wear a fancy new outfit that's been designed especially for her, so it kind of meets approval for both a noble lady and a knight. She gets some, like, fancy, fancy, court-appropriate, gender-neutral clothing, which is a bit cool. Um, uh, the introduction goes well, and preparation for the coronation gets into full swing. Uh, Alana's worrying about her aimless wandering... Uh, and not having a purpose, comes to nothing because Jonathan offers her the role of King's Champion, which she has absolutely earned. She also talks to him about uh, the whole marriage thing, again, not in a fighty way this time. He's just like, you know, the offer still stands. And she's like, oh my god, for fuck's sake, no, <laughs> it wouldn't work. We're too different. We want different things. This, how it is now, this is better. Um, and then she spots a drawing of Thyat and teases him about actually just checking that the coast is clear. Um, <laughs> she says that, she tells him that he should, uh, if he's into Thyat, he should pursue her because she would make a good queen. Um, and then there's a really fun bit where um, Jonathan's like, uh, the next day or something, Jonathan <laughs> stops by Miles' house to talk to her and she's just got up. So she puts on a dress and she goes downstairs to see him. And she walks in and he goes, that's a pretty dress. Are you wearing it for anyone in particular? And she goes, yes, myself. Which is another great point. Wear things because you like them. Okay? Um, she she goes to the palace and she runs into Delia of Eldorn and Princess Josiane. Both women that Jonathan was temporarily involved with in the past. And they're both openly hostile to Alana. And results in Delia calling her a slut which we talked about at the top. There it is. Um, coronation day rolls around and tensions are high. I'm going to skim over a lot of the detail here. Otherwise, it'll just be... Okay, I might as well just read the whole chapter and I'm pretty sure that's a no-go. 
Um, so partway through this, the coronation ceremony, Roger finally kicks off his final evil master plan. There's an attack on Jonathan, although that's more about other people like piggybacking off Roger because they still think he wants the throne. Um, and there's a, there's a series of massive earthquakes that kicks off. So that's that's Roger. Um, Alana runs out to find Tom, and when she does, he's on he's about to die, and he does his best to warn her about what's going on. Several more deaths rapidly ensue, and Alana reaches that point where the hero is just like fucking done with everything. I think we all kind of know this scene. It's kind of like the bit when John Wick's dog is killed, and so this like kicks off Alana's roaring rampage of revenge. She's like, fuck all of this. I'm gonna find Roger. I'm gonna fucking kill him again. And this time he's staying dead. Let's get this over with. But unfortunately, she has to like work her way up the food chain. <laughs> She's going to, you know, fight a minor bad guy first, which is Alex. Alex, who she has been wearing of ever since their friendly bout of fencing years ago when he almost fucking killed her. Um, and it turns out his whole motivation has been to beat Alana so he can be best swordsman. It seems like really shitty motivation, but okay. Um, so they duel and finally set the record straight on who is the better swordsman. Alana carries on to find Roger. Uh, she finds him in the deepest catacombs of the castle, waiting for her. And without going into too much detail, because I do still want you all to read these books if you haven't, um, they face off, and she realizes that to beat him, she needs to do the thing that is hardest for her, which is nothing. She has to stop fighting. So she does, she kills Roger, and once again, she has defeated her big bad. The toll is pretty great, um, and as King's Champion, she's got a lot of work to do, but uh, she needs to take some time for herself. So she does the same thing she did last time she killed Roger, and she heads for the desert. But this time she's she's not wandering, she's going back to her tribe to, to rest and heal. While she's there, she's, she's contemplating everything in her life that's brought her to this point, uh, when George arrives and asks her to marry him. George, who has always not only accepted her just as she is, but loves her just as she is, and who wants her to be and do everything that she's ever dreamed of. And this is kind of a bittersweet ending for me. Because for the most part, like he doesn't ask much of her. Except that he does want to have children, and she agrees. And this is the one change in Alana that makes absolutely no sense to me. And I have a, a, kind of a hard time articulating it, but... She's gone through so much, and she's learned so much about herself, and grown and changed as a person. And we can see all those changes. We can track them. We can point to where those changes happen. Throughout her exploration of her gender, and what that means for her, and how she expresses it, we can trace that journey. Same with her magic. Her complicated relationship with her magic. We can, we can follow that. But with the decision to have kids with George, like even once children start featuring in her life, there's never any indication that she feels any strong parental instinct, you know? She seems to feel much more of a mentor-type role than parental, and, and that suits her, and I think it makes sense. And I'd kind of be lying if I didn't, if I said I didn't feel a little bit let down by her decision to have children with George because I can't relate to it. Um, but despite all that... Uh, you know, Alana is, is still a pretty big deal to me and has always had such a massive impact on my life. 
when I first read these books, I was, I would have been 10 or 11. Um, I attended a very small church-run school and attended church-run activities like youth group and rally, which is kind of like brownies or Girl Scouts, but church. So the stuff we did was much more oriented towards like arts and crafts and homemaking type stuff. Um, Yeah, I went to Sunday school and church with my parents every week, but I never really felt like I fit in those spaces. I was I was constantly around people who were absolutely assured in their faith and their belief in God, and I never felt the same conviction that everyone around me seemed to. So I was always in my books, and then all of a sudden there was here was another young girl who didn't feel right in her world, who didn't want to fill the kind of roles that were expected of her just because she was a girl. Um, you know, another young girl who was stubborn and short-tempered and wanted to be allowed to do all the same things that the boys were doing. You know, I got to see this girl kind of like me going after the things she wanted with both hands. And although I didn't realize it at the time, Alana's constant work to be the best in a quote-unquote man's world wasn't fiction, you know, in, in the real world, women. And to a greater extent, BIPOC women, for us, it's not enough to to just be good at something. You know, we have to work harder than everyone else to be taken seriously. And sometimes even being the best still isn't good enough. Alana taught me that you can't control what other people think of or say about you. So you probably shouldn't waste too much energy worrying about it or trying to influence it. Um, She taught me that, that sexual promiscuity has zero bearing on your value as a person. Admittedly, I had to learn that lesson a few times, but she was the first one to teach me that. Um, she she told me that you absolutely do not have to follow assumed gender norms. Everyone deserves the freedom to express their identity in whatever ways feel right to them. And when you have the opportunity to make it a little easier for others, you have a moral obligation to do so. So don't pull the ladder up behind you. Like so many others, Alana means the world to me, and there's a good chance that I wouldn't be the person I am today if if it hadn't been for her. So, to Tamara Pierce, I say thank you from the deepest, deepest depths of my heart. Thank you for our lioness. And so concludes our time with Alana. Uh, If I decide in the future to cover other Tortal heroines, and I probably will, then we will see her again, but... For now, this is where we leave her. Special thanks this week. There are special thanks. Thank you so, so much to my new Patreon supporters, you wonderful, magical people. Um, With your support, I can now upgrade my hosting platform and start releasing more content, which is very exciting indeed. Um, Specific special thanks this month go out to Bailey, who is always there to aggressively support everything I do. I love you. And to Katie, who is donating at the $10 a month tier. Holy shit! Um, you will be getting access to an extra special bonus episode very soon. If you too would like to support this podcast, there are many ways that you can do that. So, like Bailey and Katie and Kate and Andy, you can subscribe to my Patreon. You can also subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, which really helps to spread the word. And I read all the reviews. At the moment, I think there's just one. But I read them. I will read them. (laughs) Uh, You can recommend me to your friends and family, and you can follow me on Twitter 
at fem underscore podcast. It's F-E-M-M-E underscore podcast, all lowercase. Uh, if you have recommendations or you just want to get in touch, you can email me at femfnpodcast at gmail.com. It's F-E-M-M-E-F-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Cover art for Fem Fucking Tastic is by me. Production and editing is also by me. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you all next time. Bye!